Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., November 21st, 1864. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. It's amazing um, how powerful a personal letter can come in a setting. And today we're beginning a series on prayer. And the starting point today is personal prayer. And maybe like a personal letter, each one of us is called to have a personal prayer life with God. Um, For those of us that follow Jesus and in his way, every single believer is called to pray to the Almighty God in a personal way. When I was little, I thought that would be too overwhelming for God, and at times I still feel that way when I don't get it, um, and I still don't get how he does that in some ways. But we know from Scripture, through all the examples of Scripture and all the prayers that are caught there in the Psalms and through the characters, that God's um, a receptor of our personal prayers. And so our call this morning is a call to personal prayer. We're going to be looking at a prayer... um, in 1 Samuel, so you can turn there. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. You can find it in one of those Bibles if you don't have one. It's after Judges and before the Kings. But at the beginning of Samuel, there's a character. She's subtle in the sense that she appears for a brief time and then her name never appears in Scripture again. In fact, her name only appears like 12 or 13 times in all of Scripture. Um, But she has this beautiful personal prayer that comes out of her life, and her name is Hannah. So we'll we'll read about the setting, and then we'll get into some some ways to think about her approach to prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah's prayer, personal prayer, comes out of her setting. And we can look at her setting um, around a few different ideas. Number one, she has a a heritage. The heritage of her life is that every year, year by year, she would go up to Shiloh to worship the Lord there and to sacrifice. She would go with her family. And every year she would be reminded that she was barren, that she couldn't have children the way she so desired. And her husband tried to give her a double portion and, and he tried to care for her. He says, aren't I, aren't I better than 10 sons? And we should note that the husband probably should have just maybe kept quiet at that point. <laughs> Because what, he, what he's saying is, I mean, I think if we get behind him and get behind his heart, he's, he's really caring for her, but he doesn't have the right words. He, he cannot understand what Hannah is experiencing. And um, she weeps and she can't eat and she feels it. So her heritage, though, is to go up to Shiloh every year. Shiloh was the place early on in, with the people of God Um, in Joshua, the book of Joshua, they set up the tabernacle there. And it became somewhat of a permanent setting where the people would worship every year. Several years, they would come up. And I've been thinking about Hannah's prayer and how it speaks into the life of prayer. And I can see this equation forming in her life. Every year, they go up to, to worship. And every year, she's reminded that she does not have what she desires And very easily, she could have associated this with God. Okay, when I go to worship, I am not who I would love to be, and and I can't do what I so desire the most, and that's to have children. And it's in um, Hannah's heritage that we find her starting point. And she goes to the place of God, and she's broken. She's wired to feel this way. She's wired to have children. That's what, part of what she was made to do. And not only that, but it's, it's her desire, and it's a good desire. Children, biblically, are a blessing inheritance from the Lord. And yet, um, like many women, she struggles, and she can't understand it. And she's, her feelings and her wiring are what should be expected in her circumstances. And the reality is that the Lord has closed her womb. It says it twice, I think, just to let it sink in. And the Lord has closed her womb. And that, again, could be maybe something that would easily drive her away from the Lord. That reality, like why would the Lord close her womb if, I mean, her desire is is a good desire to have children. She can't, um, 
It's not the point. The point is not to describe in detail what all that means, but I think it's worth speaking to in the sense that um, the Lord is the giver of life. He does open up the womb. He establishes life. And we, as husbands and wives, we play a role in that, in bringing forth children, and we have a certain sense of responsibility and control in that. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who, who brings forth a child in, in his creative way. And we're, we're called to go and fill the earth to do this. There's a, a biblical meta-narrative, a big theme of the Bible is barrenness. Um, God gave Abraham a promise. Through you and through your line, I will bless the whole earth. You will have countless like the stars offspring. And yet Sarah, his wife, old, way past the age of of childbearing, was barren until the Lord opened her womb through a a really tender story and Isaac was born. And then Isaac, and with his wife Rebecca, experienced the same thing. Rebecca was barren. She couldn't have children until later when the Lord opened her womb and Jacob was born. And then Jacob and his wife Rachel experienced the same barrenness. For years, they longed for a son until Joseph was born. Even in the New Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren until John the Baptist came along um, as a miraculous baby in the way of Jesus, ahead of Jesus. So we see this as a, a big theme of the Bible, this idea of barrenness and God opening the womb. And uh, what I would say is that Hannah felt that, and she felt it in a real way. When you feel something like that, it may, the helpful thought may not be, well, you're part of God's big, huge story of how he's redeeming the whole lineage of his people through Christ. In that moment, it, when, you, when you drill down to the way it's felt, I don't know how helpful that would have been for her. Um, but what we can learn in her approach from God is that she takes her setting, her, and this is my first point if you're taking notes, is that a, a personal prayer life requires that we bring our setting to the Lord, um, our heritage, how we got to be who we are and where we are. And then the way we're wired, we need to bring that before the Lord. And our reality often spurs um, our cries to the Lord. That's what happens with Hannah. It's really beautiful. But let's look at um, the actual prayer that she prays in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And th- this verse 10 right here, I think, is the the pivotal verse of this whole passage. It carries so much weight. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Between her distress and her weeping is prayer. And then this is, this is her prayer. It's actually a vow. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget me, your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor 
shall touch his head. The thing I love about Hannah's prayer here is that it's, it's honest. And in a way, it's, it almost feels like she's doing an if-then. Like, if you give me a son, then I'll dedicate him. We'll unpack that a little bit, but what I would say is there's just an honesty in that. This is the way we come to the Lord. We, we're struggling to understand what he's doing, why he's doing it, and, and we plead to him the good thing that we want. And we're not sure how he's going to work it out or if he will. She says, um, she begins her prayer, O Lord of hosts, that's Jehovah Sabaoth, which is O Lord of armies, vast armies, heavenly hostly armies is what that means. She knows who she's coming to. And how does she refer to herself? Your servant. She says it three times. Your servant, your servant, your servant. And not only is there honesty in her prayer, but there's a sense of humility. She knows who the Lord is. She makes her way to the doorpost of the temple, like the song we sang earlier. If she can just find her way to the presence of God, then maybe she can get to the root of her barrenness. Um, The vow that she makes is interesting, to say the least. Um, She seems to be inciting the Nazarite vow. So a Nazarite vow was something that the people of God were given in Numbers chapter 6. You can go and read about it. But it, it, Nazarite is someone who's set apart. So she was just um, calling upon God to say, Lord, if you give me a son, I will set him apart. I will dedicate him to you all the days of his life. And no razor will touch his head. That was one of the conditions of being a Nazarite. And, and this vow is... Um, it's something that in the practice of it, it had earthly um, limits. So there was ways to end the vow. Actually, you would shave your head and you would place the hair on the altar and it would be consumed before the Lord. So it was like, it could have been a season in your life where um, you would set yourself apart before the Lord. Um, and this is what she seems to incite for her son. There is one interesting connection um, in the book of Judges which is right before this. Historically, timing-wise, I'm not sure how far back it was, but in Israel's history, it would have been the more recent history. Um, She may have remembered the judge Samson, who was the last judge in the book of Judges. And the judges were these little highlights as the people continued to downwardly spiral away from the Lord. But um, Samson was interesting because an angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents. And... Uh, Manoah and his wife were barren. And the angel of the Lord said, you will have a son and your son will be set apart from the womb. He'll be a Nazarite. So that's what Samson did when he was born. He took a Nazarite vow. And he, uh, we know this, some of us know the story about him getting his hair cut off. That, so it didn't go that great for Samson in the end. And he, he failed at that vow. But I want, you know, I've wondered with Hannah... Um, you know, she's looking for something in her heritage to hang on to. So she says, oh, maybe if I incite the Nazarite vow like, like it was for Samson, maybe the Lord would respond to that. I mean, honestly, the Lord does respond to that. There's something there because this is what the Lord does. Um, 
Look at verse 12. And as we read this next section, I want you just to feel what Hannah is feeling. Listen to the language that's used to describe the way she pours out her prayer. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor drink, nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I think this further exemplifies the second point of personal prayer, which personal prayer is honest. We honestly bring our setting before the Lord, and that's what Hannah does. Um, The language is strong. She's speaking in her heart. We should note that the the two men in the story misdiagnosed the situation. So not only does Elkanah not have the best words for her, but Eli, the man in charge at the temple, um, he thinks she's drunk. And he kind of derides her. He's like, why are you here this way? And she has to convince him, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul. Like, you see the word play there? You're, You're totally missing what's happening right now in my heart. And that's what she does. She speaks from the heart. Um, the word worthless there is uh, just, it's a, it's a vulgar word of just like that there's nothing good in you. And she says, that's not, how, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. She says, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I, when I saw those words, I, those are strong words. Anx- the word anxiety there is anguish. It's an anguish that you can't go on anymore. Like after all these years, year by year, she would come up to Shiloh. And probably every year she would pray, Lord, give me a child. And early on, it was like just these glimmers of hope, you know. And year by year, it would just, it would just um, hit more and, and just in a harder way each year. Until like she hits this breaking point. Maybe this year, it just it hit her in a different way. She couldn't eat. She lost her appetite. She um, was just downcast at a time when she should have been celebrating what the Lord had been doing in her life. They were likely celebrating Passover. And so the, this idea that God would remember her would have been prevalent at the time. Like God remembered us when he delivered us out of Egypt. So all these things are connecting for her. And um, what I would say, and this is a third point, is that at the end of this encounter, In verse 18, we see that she finds a sense of peace with God before there's really any answer to her prayer or not an answer. It says, at the end there, she went away. She was able to eat, and her face was no longer sad. And and for me, that's been helpful to see um, just this sense of relief when we come to God in personal prayer and we encounter him 
there is this sense of peace that we find, even though it's mysterious. I would say in the activity of prayer, God, his role is silent. In the practice, the practical, if you go in your room after church and you pray in your private room with the Lord and you pray from your heart or audibly, you will probably be the only audible voice in the room. I mean, that's, that is the reality of our experience. doesn't mean God isn't going to break some rules from time to time, but the rule of our land and the rule of our days, when we go into our prayer rooms and we pray to the Lord, silence. And I've been thinking a lot about that when it comes to the practicality of our prayer lives. And there's some good thoughts. One of which is, um, I love Psalm 116, chapter 2, when David has this prayer. He says, because you turned your, he's talking to God, because you turned your ear to me, I will call on you all the days of my life. The fact that the God of the universe would hear David's prayer was enough for him. And I think for the most part in our practice of prayer, God's role is a listening role. Um, that doesn't mean that he's not active in, his, in that role. Romans 8, 28, um, or I think it might be 8, 26. I don't know. Somebody can check me on that. But it says that the spirit groans on our behalf without words. When we don't have words, the spirit groans for us. Um, but in our practice of prayer, I think God... When we go and we pour out our heart, um, he's silent, but he's not inactive. And that's where I would say, even in Hannah's example, we see that before God answers the prayer, she finds peace with God. And, And we can see that. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. I think Elkanah is kind of like saying, don't forget the vow that you made as you, um, these first few years, become familiar with this child. There's a responsibility that's on the other side of her answered prayer that she must encounter. So we pick it up. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him, in verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, this is where she's kind of like going back to remember that time. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, 
And this is that my Lord is a sign of respect. It might be in all lowercase in your Bible. Oh, my Lord, as, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord, Yahweh, has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And so she's fulfilling her vow. The very end there, it says, um, I have lent him to the Lord all the days of my life. And I've thought um, this, this idea that when God answers our prayers, um, depending on the way we pray and the way he answers, there's often a calling to a new responsibility. And this would be the fourth point if you're keeping track. And I'm trying to restate him so maybe you remember him later that um, when God interacts with us in our personal prayer life, we have a responsibility in the way that he interacts back with us. And Hannah felt this. And it's, it's interesting because Eli, who she left him with, had these two sons who, if you read the rest of the story, they would be like the worst role models ever for Samuel. I mean, maybe he saw them and saw what not to do, you know, like it was one of those scenarios. And, and she left him there at, at the place, the house of God, to be in the presence of God. And, you know, she had to trust that God would um, see it through. And, and God did see it through. Samuel becomes the one who anoints the first kings of Israel. He anoints Saul, and then he anoints King David. And it's really cool how in, in God's fulfillment of her prayer, um, she has this responsibility, and then God uses it for an eternal purpose, even though his, his earthly life is um, a sacrifice for Hannah. And this is where I, I, I really like the picture of Hannah because it, it just it gives us this picture of our interaction with God that is um, real, it's dynamic, it's personal, it's mysterious at times on how he works, and yet it's something that, that he wants from all of us. And to think about this responsibility and how God answers prayer a little bit more, there are certain things that we that are out of our control. Like Hannah could not open up her womb. I mean, that, the Lord had to do that. It says that um, when she lay with her husband, the, it says that the Lord remembered her and opened her womb. It's, it's kind of like this calling back that God actually responds to her prayer. And he remembers her and he opens up her womb and she has Samuel. Um, but now that she has Samuel, she has responsibility. She has things that she's committed to. I don't know that that's a good, um, I think it's honest in the sense that when we get to those places, we, we will do whatever we need to do to work with the Lord, to assist him in um, bringing our will to his and then allowing our will to become his will. That's, what, that's the work of prayer is bringing our will to his and allowing um, him to transform it into his will. And how, you know, that happens in different ways in each of our circumstances. But there is a responsibility that we play. If you think, just as a biblical example, there's, uh, in James chapter one, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault. 
But when he asks, he should ask with confidence, with faith, not as one who's tossed to and fro. So we have this promise in Scripture. If, if we believe it and trust it and we ask with confidence, God will give us wisdom. So think, think about God answering that, your prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. And you ask it with full confidence in who he is. Now think about the wisdom that you have in this life. And think about the way that it's come. If you can um, identify how wisdom comes and narrow it down. I mean, wisdom always has a cost to us to learn. And most of the wisdom that we have, it's just not like, poof, there it is. It's, it comes from God through our experiences and through our hardships. And then we're more wise on the other side. This is what we ask the Lord for. Be careful what you ask for. Because how it comes will come in different ways, but he will bring it. I was, um, I was visiting with Ruth White a couple years ago, and, and I had some special times just visiting her a few times here and there. And there, there was always lessons to be learned from her and her, um, her way. But one time, her TV wasn't working, so we tried to fix it, and I was not the best tech support in the moment. I couldn't fix her TV, and... Um, so we said, okay, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll go figure this out later or something. So we, we sat down and we prayed and I remember praying about her TV and I've always struggled with these very ordinary prayers that seem kind of, I don't know, basic and, but it felt right, you know, in the moment. And, and this is, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. Right after we prayed, uh, there was a knock at the door and there was a couple from our church and they showed up with a TV. And it was just a reminder to me of how the Lord answers prayer. You know, we think it's so mysterious and so grandiose, and it is when he intervenes in special ways. But often it's like, oh, Lord, I wish that, um, I wish there would be more Christians in Africa in Burkina Faso. And it's like, well, how, how will that happen unless we go and, and be part of that? It, it could happen with, without us. But God calls us to a responsibility in our prayer life. Whatever we ask for, there are responsibilities and sometimes costs. But this is, this is the opportunity to follow after Christ and to live like him. I would say um, in closing that the theology of how we approach prayer is what we already talked about, the scripture I read from Hebrews chapter 4. You know, Jesus, who had no sin, passed through heaven, and he is our high priest. It says, by him and by the blood he shed, we come to the throne of grace to receive mercy in a time of need. That would be how we approach God or by what means we approach God or by what confidence and authority we approach God. But then how we approach God practically is what we were talking about today. And if I could require you, I would but I can't, but I can call you to it. And that is um, wherever you are in the spectrum of your personal prayer life, this week, find time to have a personal prayer time with God. And when you do, you know, use this, this suggested way of, of modeling after Hannah's prayer, which is evaluate your setting. What's your heritage? We don't all have the same heritage. And, and, Maybe what are you associating with God in your life? Like Hannah 
Every year she went to worship, she was reminded of her barrenness. And, and then bring your wiring. There can be kids in the same family that are always different, right? It's because they're wired. Their personality is different. And that's what the Lord wants us to bring to him in our prayer lives. And then your reality. Think about your reality. Maybe it's not a great source of pain right now. Maybe it is. But another question would be, what conversation are you having with the Lord right now? What are you dialoguing with, with him about? So as we conclude, I'd like to just, um, I, they almost give us a little glimmer of the rest of the story here. There's some cool things that happen with this prayer. Um, after she makes this request, she goes on and, and does this amazing song, a prayer song that we read in scripture. And it's really interesting because it's the first place in the Bible that the word Messiah shows up used for the coming king. Um, in chapter 2, verse 10, this is Hannah's prayer. It, her prayer starts early on like, you deride our enemies. And, and it even speaks about um, children in the prayer. But by the verse 10, it's much broader than that. It's as if she does get this broader story through the Spirit laid upon her This is what comes, she says. In verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There is no king yet. Where did she get this? This is what the Lord brought to her. And some of the commentaries are surprised that that the first mention of the Messiah and the way that we think of it, the coming king, is mentioned here. It's right there in verse 10. His anointed. And then if you go to verse 18, there's a nice picture here. The rest of the story. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So the call, um, we're going to talk about different layers of prayer in the the coming weeks. Um, But the call today is a call to personal prayer. And a call for you to allow God to encounter your setting and to honestly pour out your soul before him to listen to to the way that he responds to that, even if it's in silence. And in the silence, to have faith that he hears your prayer. And then to um, walk with God and the responsibilities that he brings as he actually answers our prayers. Um, We're going to pray now, and and, um, we're going to sing a song here at the end.
It's uh, great are you, Lord. It ties nicely to what we've talked about because it says it's your breath in our lungs that we pour out in praise and prayer and coming to you. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to pray to you, come before you in prayer. God, thank you that you do hear our prayers, that um, in a mighty and in a powerful way, in a way that's beyond us, you hear our personal prayers. And Lord, give us the right degree of faith to accept that and to believe it and help our hearts to believe it more fully. God, do the work in our hearts to um, strengthen our weak faith in you. God, I do pray that you would um, reveal yourself in profound and visible ways or even silent ways, Lord, in the way that you give us this confidence in your presence and the peace that comes with being near you. Lord, I pray over each person here, God, this week, that we would have a personal time of prayer um, set apart to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.